to read the first eight verses of chapter 2. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. For kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. So, I want people everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer, without anger or disputing. I've mentioned before that the theme of the book of First Timothy is growing a church. This is the way you plant and develop a body of uh, believers. We talked a couple of weeks ago about chapter 1 and the extreme significance of exposition. Uh, Our task is to say again what the apostles and what the prophets have said. That's why we believe in exposition here. We realize that teaching is not the only gift. Uh, We may from time to time emphasize that gift because it's so important, but we believe that all the gifts are equally important in the development of the body. But but that teaching gift is, uh, is so important needs to be held in, in high regard by all who teach and all who sit under our, the teachers in our body. We believe in exposition because exposition is uh, simply saying again what the apostles and prophets have said. It's much more memorable. It's much more fo- powerful. You can recover it by going back to the scriptures and reading them again. And it's the means by which the Lord draws us into his heart and makes us... Uh, more like himself. As Paul says, the what we're after is the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Our concern is not simply to teach you the word so you know it, so that it penetrates our hearts, begins to uh, show itself in a, in, a, in a greater manifestation of the character and the nature of Christ wherever we go. Paul says in Titus, we are to adorn the gospel. We're to make it winsome and attractive. There's a goodness that isn't good at all. It's stern and hard and fearsome and difficult to be around. But there's a goodness that comes from the word of God as as the spirit of God takes that word and plants it in our hearts and begins to give life to us. And that's why we believe in teaching the scriptures. That's uh, foundational. It's one of the the really important parameters of our ministry here at Cole. But Paul says there's something of even greater importance. He introduces this uh, text in verse 1 by saying, I urge first of all, and by first of all, he doesn't mean this is one in a, in a list of things we ought to be doing, not simply enumerating the activities of the church. He's saying this is of first importance. And you'll notice that little conjunction in there, then or therefore, depending on the translation that you have, that takes you back into chapter 1, 
specifically into verse 18, where Paul delivers his charge to Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. Uh, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and demonic regimes, dark powers, invisible powers behind the scenes. And prayer is one of the means by which we carry on that uh, struggle. That's how we get behind the scenes where the, where the action is. Uh, Paul describes the difficulty of Timothy's ministry and some that were being led away from the faith, too, that are, that are mentioned here by name. And, and therefore, Paul says, it's of extreme importance, the most important thing of all, uh, to pray. It's the first order of business. It's the main thing. It's the center. It's the core. It's the root. It's the spirit of all that we do. It's our primary task, and, and by it, uh, everything else is is done. Now, prayer is a great mystery, I must admit. Uh, I think all of us have a have a difficult time grappling with it. You know, how can some spur of the moment, off the cuff prayer of mine change God's mind, pl- change His immutable plan, this uh, great uh, cosmic plan He has for for the universe? It's highly unlikely that any prayer that I have would alter God's. Uh, plan in the least, and therefore, what what is it for? Why pray? Well, Paul, in part, answers uh, the question not by theologizing, but by simply issuing a command. It's, it's, a, it's a matter of, of obedience. Paul says, pray, whether we understand it or not. Pray. As my mother used to say, we're all happier if we have someone to mind. Uh, we, we get tied up in and trying to understand and explain all the intricacies of, of prayer. And, and bottom line, Paul says, don't worry about it. Just pray. But as we all know, we really don't need to be told to pray. Prayer is the natural reaction to any, any necessity. Whenever we're in a bind, whenever things get difficult, whenever we're in trouble, we just uh, automatically pray. You know the old adage, there, there are no atheists in foxholes. Oh, God is, is the prayer that comes up from, from the heart when, when the heat is on. We've all experienced that. Uh, my mother uh, told me that when I was a small child just beginning to talk, I was sitting in a wheelchair, uh, wheelchair, in a high chair in the, <laughs> in the kitchen, and uh, she had some bacon on it was frying, and she went off and left it and uh, caught on fire. And she ran into the kitchen and tried to start to put it out, call for my father. And she tells me that I said at that point, Mother, is it time to pray? Uh, we just know instinctively that there are certain times that call for prayer. And it may not be prayer meetings as such, formal, structured times of prayer, but it's just that cry of the heart that, that goes on in the face of any uh, deep uh, necessity. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I came across this uh, poem, a little, little bit of whimsy here, that speaks to this issue of theologizing about prayer, which misses the point. Uh, the proper way for a man to pray, said Deacon Lemuel Keyes, and the only proper attitude is down upon your knees. No, I should say the way to pray said Reverend Dr. Wise, is standing straight with outstretched arms and wrapped in upturned eyes. No, 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 said Elder Shaw, such posture is too proud. A man should pray with eyes fast closed and head contritely bowed. 
It seems to me his hands should be austerely clasped in front with both thumbs pointing to the ground, said Reverend Dr. Blunt. Last year I fell in Hitchkin's well head first, said Cyrus Brown, with both my heels a-sticking up and my head a-pointing down. And I made a prayer right then and there, the best prayer I ever said. The prayingest prayer I ever prayed, a standing on my head. <laughs> prayer is that uh, cry of desperation. You know, it is the it is the highest expression of our dependence upon God. Calvin said, "We do not pray with the view of telling God about things unknown to Him, or of exciting Him to do His duty." or of urging him as though he were reluctant. On the contrary, we pray in order that we may arouse ourselves to seek him, that we may exercise our faith, that we may declare that from him alone we hope and expect both for ourselves and others all good things. Perhaps the most startling thing that our Lord ever said is, I can do nothing of myself. Is the God-man very candidly admitted that he could not do anything apart from God. His whole life was prayers. The aura of his life, the atmosphere, the environment in which he lived, the air he breathed. He was subject to, to constant interruption, busy beyond comparison, jostled by friends and foes, but he always found time to pray. It was his life. When he called Lazarus from the grave, he called first on God for his supply. When he took the bread from the little boy and began to break it, he thanked his father that there was enough to, to go around. When certain Greeks came seeking him, he prayed that the father would, would glorify the, the son. It's this vision of ourselves as, as needy, dependent people that makes life a matter of prevailing prevailing prayer. That's why we pray without ceasing. It's not something that necessarily has to be structured. It often is and can be and but it's more than that. It's it's a it's an attitude. It's a it's the cry of the heart throughout the day. It's our response to every emergency and exigency in life. Whatever comes our way, every demand upon us is a is a call for prayer. David says in Psalm one oh nine, I am prayer. Uh, some of our translations say, I'm a man of prayer. They supply that phrase. But but in the text, his actual statement is much more terse. I am prayer. He said prayer was the essence and genius of his life. It was the center, the heart, the core of it. And uh, by prayer, everything else uh, was done. Now, in thinking about prayer, uh, it seems to me that prayer is many things. It's praise, it's admiration, it's uh, it's affection, it's fondness, it's devotion, it's responding. It's the heart's response to God's goodness. As he reveals himself to us, we, we respond to him. Now, our times with God are not monologues in which one does all the talking. God speaks to us through his word, and we respond in prayer. It's the response we make to God's self-disclosure. Uh, prayer is the means by which we... Uh, Discern what God is saying to us in his word. The process by which uh, truth becomes understood is not natural, it's supernatural. Uh, Paul says uh, very clearly in 1 Corinthians that, that the spirit is required to understand the things of God. That's how we know the things that God has, has prepared for those that love him. The deep things, 
the things that are the profound things in the heart of God are revealed as we pray. So we read the word and we ask God to explain it to us, to teach us from it, to help us to understand. Uh, prayer is the means by which truth becomes a part of our life. Uh, Paul, uh, as I've said before, lays out a number of facts about the character of God and what he's done. Then he prays that we'll comprehend and apprehend it. It'll become a part of, uh, of, our, of our life. Prayer brings us into conformity to the truth. Prayer is confession, breathing out our ugly stories, all of our horrible, awful thoughts and imaginations. Uh, it's exposing ourselves before God. John says if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Prayer is thanksgiving. It's gratitude and expressing appreciation for all that, uh, that God is doing. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, prayer is the means by which we fit in. It's the means by which God aligns us with what he's doing uh, in the world. We come with our lists, he presents us with his. We come with our prayers and desires and ambitions, and he changes the whole direction of our praying so that we begin to pray along the lines of his will. That's how we uh, get get in line with what he's already determined uh, to do. Prayer is entreaty. And petition, it's asking for things. It's all right to ask. Uh, Paul said, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. We had a, a, a woman this morning who told us she'd lost her purse a couple of weeks ago, and, and, and uh, she prayed, and miraculously her purse showed up. We heard uh, Bob talk about his calves and how he prayed for his calves, and his calves were, uh, were spared. Uh, what we have to understand, though, is that asking is not demanding. There's a difference. We're coming to a friend. You don't make demands of friends. Uh, you ask, and he uh, he answers in his own time and in his own way. We ask in our time and our way. He answers in his. That's all. We have to keep that that in mind. And prayer is also intercession for others. And here we have come back into our text because this is Paul's concern. He says, first of all, I want you to intercede for all people. And especially for kings. Oh my, you know who the king is today. We would rather rail against him than pray for him. But Paul says we must pray for our leaders on a national level, state level, local level. It's a command. It's administered here by an inspired apostle of of Jesus Christ. He says pray for those that are in uh, positions of authority. Do you know who the king was when Paul issued this command? It was Nero. Nero's uh, reign spanned the last half of Paul's ministry, about 13 years. Paul was engaged in missionary activity for about 25 years. 13 of, of those years, Nero was, was the emperor. From about the, well, actually the first part of the third missionary journey on to Paul's uh, death, uh, that's the last 13 years of Nero's reign. Nero, Paul died about 67. Nero actually murdered him. Hoods took him out on the Ostian Way and chopped his head off. That was in 67. Nero died in, in 68. Committed suicide. His last words were, what a great artist dies in me. He's a terrible man. Absolutely terrible man. Uh, 
raised in what we'd call today a dysfunctional home. His father was, was Caligula, one of the cruelest men that ever lived. His mother was a, was a trollop. Bounced from one bed to the next and one husband to the next. Finally ended up settling in with uh, Claudius, who was her uncle. Uh, Claudius became uh, Nero's stepfather. Nero came to the throne when he was 17 years of age, and they had high hopes for him. He was a brilliant young man. They thought he would usher in a new uh, golden age uh, for Rome. He ruled well for about five years, and then he gave way to some kind of paranoid insanity. He killed his mother, killed his little brother, killed his wife, killed Seneca, who was his tutor, the wise Seneca. You probably read some of his quotations. Kill Lucan, the, the famous Roman poet, some of his best generals, eradicated the leadership in his army, killed everyone he could lay his hands on. Tacitus, uh, who was a Roman historian of that time, said, we began to hate him. He murdered his mother and, and wife, and then he turned out to be a, a jockey, an imposter, and a firebug, uh, a, a firebrand. He, he burned Rome to the ground, as far as we know. Blamed it on the Christians, but he probably did it because he wanted to get rid of some of the ugly buildings and rebuild the city of Rome in his own honor. You know the old adage, uh, Nero fiddle while the city roamed. Actually, they didn't have fiddles back then, but he was on stage. He was singing uh, in an opera about uh, Troy while, while Rome burned down around him. He was crazy. Uh, he went to Greece and... Uh, uh, Enlisted himself in the Olympic Games, but he insisted that he win every race. He was just out of his mind. And finally, Rome and the Senate turned against him and forced him to commit suicide. And he dies saying, what a great artist I am. That's the kind of man that was the king. And Paul says, pray for him. Pray for him. Don't rail against him. Uh, Paul later, his bottom line, verse 8, is men and women ought to lift up, actually women are included in verse 9, but it says in verse 8, men ought to lift up holy uh, holy hands. And verse 9, women likewise, he's, he's assuming that women will pray as well, lift up holy hands. And he's not talking about the position of prayer, he's talking about the state of the heart, to be holy, see, without anger and without disputation. The word that's translated disputation here is the word from which we get our word dialogue. But back then, dialogue was a pejorative term. It's not exactly like our term. It's the equivalent today of talking trash. That would be, that, that's the better way to put it. So that when we badmouth the king and we, and we're furious and we rage at him, see, we're not lifting up holy hands. Holy hands are hands of prayer that humbly ask for these people, ask that they might become Christians, that they might be saved, that that they will rule righteously, that they will bring to our state law and order and, and justice. That's the proper function of government, is to restrain the evil of, of, of men and women and to, uh, to maintain law and order and justice. And we should pray that, that that would be true of our leaders. But that's not where Paul leads, lead, leaves us. The most interesting thing about this passage is what we're told to pray for. We are told to pray that these men and women in positions of leadership at every level, national, state, local, will maintain law and order 
so we can preach the gospel. Because that's what God wants with all of his heart. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance and acknowledge the truth. What truth? The truth that there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Do you follow his argument? That's his thesis. It's pray for peace so we can preach the gospel. Now we pray for peace so we'll have ease and affluence. We pray for peace so we can make a whole lot of money. Or we don't have to be hassled by uh, government. We get them off our backs. We don't have to be uh, be afraid of other nations. That's not what Paul is talking about. Paul says, pray for peace so we can preach the gospel. Because God doesn't want anybody to perish. Now, there are two words for will in the New Testament. One has to do with God's effectual will. That is what he actually does. The, the other has to do with what he wants. Now, it's obvious that not everybody will become a Christian. But with all of God's heart, that's what he wants. And we ought to have the same heart that God has for the world around us. We we should be longing for people to be brought in. We should be hungering for that. We should ask that God would give us the same great heart for others that he has. See, we... We all, we all of us struggle with hardness of heart. We look around us at our at our friends and neighbors, and, we, and, and, and they don't know the Lord. And we know that they're lost, and and yet we're we're not motivated to do anything about it. Well, let me tell you, you can't motivate yourself. You can't make your old heart do anything. All you can do is ask God to give you His great heart. And as we begin to pray that God would give us a a socioeconomic, political environment in which we can openly preach the gospel, then, then God can begin to touch our hearts and give us the same love that he has for people around him. I, I have a dear friend who lives up in the Coeur d'Alene area now, Paul Murray. Some of you have met him. We've had him speak to uh, some of our groups from time to time. Paul was associated with me when I was in, involved in a campus ministry down in, in California. And uh, he and another friend were flying, I know the other friend real well too, they were flying from Chicago to San Francisco in a 727, and uh, they were out over uh, somewhere out in the Midwest, and uh, a window blew out, and the, the plane depressurized, and it, this fog uh, filled the, the cabin, and it just got to be freezing cold, and uh, gas, the uh, gas mask, yeah, oxygen mask dropped out of the over overhead compartments. And the pilot knows the plane down. They thought it was crashing. He was just trying to get down so they wouldn't freeze to death and so they could breathe down. And the plane nosed over and they were just plummeting through space. And, and, and this friend swears this is true. I asked him, he was there and he heard it and he swears it's true. Paul turned to him and he said, John, shouldn't we be sharing the four laws with somebody? <clears throat> In case you don't know the four laws or campus crusades, so explanation of the gospel. But you know, we're all on a plane that's going down. Shouldn't we be sharing the four laws with someone? Shouldn't we be praying that God would give us the climate and continue to maintain the climate that we have in which we can preach the gospel? We are so fortunate here in the United States. No one's impeding our progress. No one stops you from sharing Christ. There may be some regulations you have to be sensitive to in certain places, and certainly you don't want to preempt work time to... Uh, rob your employer by by using utilizing that time to evangelize but my goodness the opportunities are are rife they're everywhere we 
We just need to take advantage of them to redeem the time, Paul says, to buy them up. Is this my prayer? Is this your prayer? Lord, give us just government. Give us rulers that will maintain law and order and justice. Give us people in leadership that will that will continue this climate so we'll be free from persecution and from from hassles and and we can openly, forthrightly proclaim the gospel because God is not willing that any should perish. He wants all to come to repentance, to, to know that great truth, that simple and yet profound truth that there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. You know, that used to be one of my impelling motivations. And uh, in the years that I've been a, a shepherd at this church, I have lost that edge. I hang out with sheep all the time. <laughs> and uh, you know, it's difficult for me to stay in, in contact with, with non-Christians. I try to work at it, try to, to do what I can, but I, it's just hard. You know, The minute I mention I'm a pastor, people run. They're scared to death. And it takes me a while for them to get used to me. And, you know, but I used to have that, that, that great heart for people and for their salvation. And, and I, I, I found that being blunted and dulled over the years. Something happened to me just recently that, that energized me again. Uh, all of you know Rod Ritchie, our new high school pastor. I've known his father for 25 years. We were associated together in ministry down in, in Palo Alto, California, and he was up here for his, uh, I think it was 38th wedding anniversary. Rod and Kena had threw a party for him. Carolyn and I went, and, and uh, we we were talking. Ron and I were over in one corner. Actually, we we spent almost the whole time chatting. We hadn't seen each other in a long time. And looked out through the back window out toward Boise Center in the Grove, and it happened to be uh, the night when they have a live after five, and there were singles all over the place, talking, looking for something. And what we know they're looking for is God. Uh, They're down there to to connect with other singles, but really underlying that is that deep hunger for relationship, hunger for God. Richie stopped me right in the middle of a sentence. He interrupted me, and he said, Hey, Roper, let's go down there and share Christ with those people. And I just could not get away from that. I thought of it almost every day since then. You know, that used to be my heart. Let's go down there and share Christ. I don't even think of it anymore. You see, that's the heart that God gives, that kind of concern for people around us. And it's the heart that all of us ought to have for others. Now, that means that uh, we, we may have to go into some dark and dangerous territory. Uh, Jesus said, I send you out like sheep among wolves. Classrooms, workshops, campuses, secular campuses, neighborhoods are sometimes very dangerous places. But God sends us out. It's where he wants us to be. Jesus uh, was himself the friend of sinners. Uh, He scandalized the religious community because he hung out with the wrong kind of people, but see that those are the people that drew his, his heart out. Uh, they claimed that he was the friend of publicans and sinners, and as it turned out, he was. There was that fellow Zacchaeus, this mean little man that crawled up in a tree to see Jesus. 
If he'd been living today, he'd, he'd either be a dealer in kitty porn, or he'd, he'd be a, a drug dealer of, of some sort. Uh, as far as the uh, clergy of that day were concerned, he, he was he was lost. He, he had he had aligned himself with the evil empire. There's no way that he could ever be reached or touched. But he was looking for something. That's why he climbed up in that tree. So that's what you learn about people when you actually get out there and start talking to them. They're looking for something. And Jesus spotted him out of that whole crowd and invited himself over for lunch. That sounds presumptuous to us in our culture, but in those days, that meant you wanted to be their friend. That's the way Zacchaeus took it. He wants to be my friend. And he did. He did. And he gathered that little man in and, and changed his life. And if we start moving in that direction, we're going we're to find ourselves with some very difficult people in some very difficult places. Carolyn reminded me this morning of a George MacDonald poem in this little guide to prayer that she and I uh, sometimes use. I said, let me walk in the fields. He said, no, walk in the town. I said, there are no flowers there. He said, no flowers but a crown. I said, but the skies are black. There's nothing but noise and din. And he wept as he sent me back. There's more, he said, there is sin. I said, but the air is thick and fogs are veiling the sun. He answered, souls are sick and souls in the dark undone. I said, I shall miss the light and friends will miss me, they say. He answered, choose tonight if I'm to miss you or they. I pleaded for time to be given. He said, is it hard to decide? It will not seem hard in heaven to have followed the steps of your guide. I cast one look at the fields and set my face to the town. He said, my child, do you yield? Will you leave the flowers for the crown? And into his hand went mine, and into my heart came he. And I walked in a light divine, the path I had feared to see. And then Carolyn had penciled in along the margin here. The time he comes to us is the time we say yes to him. Let me tell you a story. Uh, I have a friend who lives in Florida today, but he used to live in uh, Laguna Beach, California. Uh, he, he was uh, an incredible man. Uh, he had this uncanny ability to spot people that were looking for God. At least that was the perception that I had of him. We were, I was down there one weekend, and uh, one evening he said, let's go down to the beach, and he grabbed a shovel and bunch of wood, and we went down to the, below his house. His house was just a little bit above the beach. He dug a hole in the sand, threw the logs in, squirted a little fire starter on him, lit a fire, and, and he said, now just sit down and wait. In about 10 or 15 minutes, people began to come from all over the beach. It gets cold at night. They gathered around the fire, and within 15 minutes, Mike was engaged in a conversation with about a half a dozen people about the gospel, of sharing Christ. That evening, we were sitting in his living room, and I said, Hey, Mike, I said, how do you know when someone is ready to hear the gospel? He said, it's easy. I ask them. My first thought was, well, you ask a dumb question, you get a dumb answer. But the more I thought about that, the more sense it made. I wasn't asking anybody. This was about, this is 1961. 
So I decided that the next person I saw, if it was appropriate, I would ask them if they were interested in spiritual things. By the way, that's a very good question. It's non-threatening. Opens people up. They have a chance to talk, and then you can listen. You don't have to say much for a while. It takes takes the pressure off, and just let them talk. They are. Most people are. Uh, if they say they aren't, then go talk about BSU's prospects for the year or whatever. So I I decided, okay, next person I ask them, see, I'm going to ask them, are you interested in spiritual things? Next morning, I went back to work. Got in my Volkswagen and started uh, down to my office. And driving down the freeway, and a young man stepped out almost in front of my car and stuck his thumb out, and uh, he got in the car, and we started driving along, chatting, and found out he was uh, from out of state. He was a student at University of California, Berkeley. He's commuting back and forth. He was a philosophy major, graduate student in philosophy. We chatted for a while about a number of things, and finally he said, this is where I get out, so I pulled off the freeway, and I turned to him, and I said, look, you may think that this is a little crazy, but I want to ask you a question. Are you interested in spiritual things? He turned around in the chair, in the seat, and he looked straight at me, and he said, friend, I've been looking for God all my life. Can you tell me how to know God? And that was just a gift from God for me, because it showed me that there were people there who were hungry to know God. I just have to ask him. I just have to ask him. So that's my prayer for you, for me, for our state, that we'll continue to have peace, that we will gain God's great heart for a world without Christ, and that we will be forthright, bold, honest, loving in our proclamation of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we do pray for the King. We pray for our President, for our Congressmen, for our local leaders, Mr. Andrus, others here in this state, for just, righteous leadership, that truth would prevail, that peace would prevail, that there would be law and order and justice in our nation, that you would preserve for us the tranquility of our of, 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 of our times so that we can, without fear, without inhibition, uh, proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, this would be our prayer. Give us your heart for people. Help us to love them as you love them. To not be willing that any should perish. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.